Well, good morning, Christ Community Church. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm the youth pastor here, and it's good to be with you this morning. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. This morning, we'll be looking at verses 10 through 12. So Romans 14, verses 10 through 12. As you're turning there, uh, the key truth that I'd like to introduce you to that we're going to explore in this passage this morning is this. Because God alone is judge, we get to focus on building up one another as siblings in Christ. Let me read that again for us. Because God alone is judge, we get to focus on building up one another as siblings in Christ. So let's turn our attention to the reading of God's word this morning and hear his word to us, his people. This is Romans 14, 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself or herself to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, in this part of Romans, as we have begun the the last leg of our Romans series, picking up in chapter 14, Paul has been showing us how all of the the beautiful theology of the gospel, those early chapters of Romans that are very well known, he's shown us how that theology must shape the way we live in unity with one another as God's people. And if you remember, the Christians at the Roman church, they divided up over several issues. They had formed different teams, different squads, different tribes, and they were fighting about who had it most right. Who was most loved? Who had all of their I's dotted and their T's crossed in just the right ways? And yet Paul is showing them that drawing up sides like that, dividing into different groups within the body of Christ, that's not the way the gospel calls us to live. And he's been calling them to a better way. He's been saying, listen, the areas where you disagree, come together in hospitality. Come together not to bicker and quarrel over opinions, but come together to love one another, to welcome each other as these debates they were on. Paul's saying, listen, before the Lord, these debates, these are not do it of sin, but it's a matter of how to live out the gospel. He's saying, whichever side you take, do it unto the glory of God for his honor, and do it out of love for your neighbor, to build one another up. Do it with thanksgiving. And now, in these few verses here, Paul's going to zoom in on our heart's motivations. And really look at what is it that drives us to judge our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then, at the same time as he's zooming in on our hearts, he wants to zoom out and give us a full, wide-angle perspective on God's soul status as judge. He wants to remind us that the Lord alone is judge of all that he has made, not us. And so like a good eye doctor, Paul is helping us see things clearly. He's zooming in on what we need to zoom in on, focusing on our hearts. And he's zooming out to give us the full picture and remind us who our God is and what our role is as his people. And so, as we, as we dig into this text and we see that, our usual practice with our sermons is we begin with a question. And this text is perfect for that because Paul asks us two questions. And it's very important for us to hear Paul ask us those questions directly. These questions are for me and you this morning. So let's hear them again from verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? And that's in Christ. It could be your actual sibling, if they're in Christ as well, but he's talking about Christians. Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? As these questions land on us, notice 
Paul's not concerned at all about which issue prompts us to judge someone else or to despise them. He's not concerned about what it is that prompts you, you know, you're, you're, they've got this wrong or that wrong. Paul doesn't focus on the issue. He's asking us why we judge or despise another Christian. What in your heart motivates you to do that? What makes you feel like you need to do that? And that's a very uncomfortable question because it's focused and it's personal. Paul gives us no opportunity to justify our judgment of somebody else by saying, well, look, Paul, like this issue, this really matters. I think this is important. No, Paul knows that our judgment of our brothers and sisters in Christ, our derision, our condescension, looking down on them, he knows that that is a symptom of a deeper issue in our hearts, and we have to confront it. Paul won't let us dodge the real issue in our hearts by making a mountain out of somebody else's molehill. Paul is asking you and he's asking me these questions. What is driving us to pass judgment and to despise our brother and sister in Christ? So why do we do these things? And there, could, there are countless reasons and it will vary from person to person. But one very common reason, I think, is that sometimes as Christians, we just have an arrogant and mistaken view of our role in one another's lives. We can suppose that our job as Christians is to make sure that everybody else thinks what we think and does what we do. I think it's true, and so if you don't do that, you must be wrong. My job is to correct you. And that might be the model of discipleship you know, you've grown up with for a significant part of your life. But Paul's questions here, they challenge us. He knows theology and doctrine and all these things, they matter. But Paul also knows that there's a big difference between correcting somebody just because you think they're wrong and sharing your theology because you believe it's true and helpful and will build somebody up. The difference there is the difference between the armchair quarterback who screams at the TV, you know, oh, you know, I should have done this, um, you know, while you are eating your snacks. It's the difference between that and being a good coach who knows your players well and knows just what it's going to take to help them grow and get better at the game. You're in their lives and you're part of your, their life and you're building them up. That's the difference here between judging and building up. And so sometimes we just arrogantly think, you know, our job is to make sure everybody does what we're doing. We think that's what it means to be a faithful Christian. Another reason we might judge or despise one another as Christians is envy. We can look down at or judge another Christian because we envy something they have or something they're getting to do in their life in God's providence. And so maybe like Martha towards Mary, you envy somebody else's joy in their discipleship. You see the way they're living their life and they seem carefree compared to you. And you, you just feel bogged down in life. You're consumed by what needs to be done, and you just feel maybe dry in your worship and discipleship. And so instead of praying for more joy for yourself, you give in to fault-finding and cynicism. And you start just thinking to yourself, there's no way you know, they're taking life seriously if they have that much joy. You know, if, they were, if they were taking things seriously, they'd be as anxious and stressed out as I am. And so you fault-find in that brother or sister. Or maybe like the older brother from Jesus' parable of the two sons, you envy God's prodigal, his generous grace towards a formerly rebellious younger brother or sister. Somebody who sinned big and lived to tell about it. And there's that part of your heart that kind of wishes you got to go and sin in that way, as if that sin were better than what you have in Jesus. And all the while in your life, like the older brother, you've been following the rules, but you feel really lackluster about it. And so you get bitter when you see somebody else receive grace after having so much obvious sin in their life and now being filled with joy and you envy that and you resent them and you despise them. 
So envy of all kinds can fuel our judgment and our derision of other Christians. And an even deeper reason, and one that I think lurks beneath many of the others, is insecurity in our relationship with God. Insecurity in our relationship with God. What I mean is a lack of assurance that God loves you personally. Not, not a lack of belief that God is love and that he loves his people, but when we have insecurity in our relationship with God, we, we have insecurity about the fact that he loves me, that he loves who I am, that he loves my story, that he is a part of my life and, and he is good to me. This is actually what happened to Cain in Genesis 4, if you think about it. In Genesis 4, you have the story of Cain and Abel, a very well-known story uh, among Christians and, and non-Christians. And in that story in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, the first sons of Adam and Eve, they both offer God sacrifices. And God accepts Abel's offering of the firstborn from his flocks. But he rejects Cain's offering from the fruit of the ground. And he does that because Cain is giving his offering as if it's a commodity. Just, you know, I insert token, I get blessing in exchange. There's no personal relationship in Cain's mind. He doesn't offer it by faith, whereas Abel does. And so when this happens, how does Cain respond? Cain responds in anger, and his face falls, Genesis says. You can picture that in your mind. He is crushed, and he's frustrated. I've offered this to God. It didn't go how I thought. Now, here's the question. Who's Cain angry at? Abel? That's sure what Cain thought, because if you know the story, you know what happens next. He goes on to murder his own brother. But ultimately, however, I think if we could look at Cain's heart with an x-ray, an x-ray wouldn't show you his heart, but you know what I mean. If we could look at his heart, he's angry at God, and he takes it out on Abel. He sublimates his anger at God in vengeance upon his brother. How did that happen? It happened because Cain assumed that there was no changing the dynamics of any of his relationships. He assumed that everything was set, that he was locked in in this relationship with his brother. In other words, Cain had what we could call an unredemptive short-sightedness. He assumed that what went down was God's favoritism towards Abel and not a matter of his sanctification and his growth in God's love. He couldn't believe that God would really accept him if he did right, even though God promised Cain to his face, will you not be blessed if you do well? But he didn't believe God could love him. He was too short-sighted. All he could see was his own shortcomings in that moment. And he assumed that that would define him forever and that that would define all of his relationships. And so his sin overtakes Cain. It overtakes his view of himself, his brother, and his view of God. And so as a result, he murders Abel, his own brother, to try to, quote, unquote, take out the competition. Now, the connection between Cain and Abel and our text this morning is that sibling relationship. That's the key connection between these two texts. Have you ever just stopped and, and considered the fact that the first sin after the fall in the Bible is between siblings? It's a brother murdering his brother. That's a staggering and sobering thing to think about, just the devastation of sin. And then think of the significance of that when you consider that Paul's primary way of talking about our relationships to one another as Christians is the sibling relationship. We are one another's brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a real thing. It's not a metaphor. We are God's family. It's who we are. That's the connection between Cain and Abel and our text in Romans. It's that sibling relationship. Because you see, Cain's actions, they illustrate, they show us very clearly the dynamic that is often at work in my heart and in your heart when we judge our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
when we look down on them for doing something differently than the way we would do it, when they don't believe things the way we do. Because what happens is, like Cain, insecurity in our relationship with God often causes us, it drives us to destroy our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we're not assured of God's love for us, we're often more prone to that arrogance and that envy and that insecurity, all of which tend to fuel our judgment and our derision against brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, of course, you might be thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not plotting to murder anybody in this room, so how does that connection work? Well, and that's good. Obviously, like Cain, we are not actually trying to destroy one another in physical terms. However, like Cain, we often cannot see our brothers and sisters through a lens of love because we don't see God's love for us clearly. All we see are errors and shortcomings, usually starting with your own. And because all you can see is your own sin and not the love of God, which by the blood of Jesus has washed that sin away, you can't see God clearly, and therefore you can't see your brothers and sisters clearly. And so that then leads to this insecure place where you think, well, if, if i got to have everything right in order to make God love me, then everybody else has to have everything right for them to be on the right track, so I've got to just go police signs of ways. We start to peck each other to death through silent snubs, passive digs, um, rants online. You may not even ever communicate it to anybody except yourself. It's just those raging shower thoughts where you think about all the things you could have said to put somebody in place, or I totally could have destroyed their argument if I just thought about this, this, and this in the moment. But when that's what's coming out of our hearts, you can tell something is off. And it's not just off in our relationship with each other. It goes back to our, our understanding of the Lord's love for us personally. Now, Paul's remedy for that in Romans 14 is to remind us first, as he does very skillfully in these questions, he is not referred to us as siblings in Romans 14 until now. He's been waiting. He first talked about us as servants of the same master. And now when he talks to us directly, why do you judge? He doesn't just say, hey, why do you judge in abstract? Why do you judge your brother and your sister in Christ? He reminds us that we are siblings, and therefore our role is not to judge each other. Because to judge somebody else, you have to have the proper authority and standing to stand objectively above that person and make the pronouncement, make the ruling. And none of us has that kind of authority over one another. We all stand together as siblings in Christ. Only God can and will judge us, Paul is saying. And so one of the points to see from that is that if you do judge someone else in Christ, what you're doing is actually twofold. You're trying to take God's role as judge. You're assuming, I've got enough wisdom, I've got enough standing to stand over this person, look down into their life, and declare things as if I were God. And then you're also neglecting your role as sibling. There is a real and a positive and a good role that God has given each of us in one another's lives. And we miss out on it when we try to take God's role as judge and judge each other instead. And so Paul is saying, we need, we need to understand these things clearly. And so he says that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We're equal there. And then he quotes from Isaiah. And so if you would, uh, flip to Isaiah with me. This is worth looking at in, in context to see what Paul is doing here. So in verse 11 of Romans 14, he's quoting from Isaiah 45. We will pick up in verse 22. So if you flip there with me, Isaiah 45. I'm going to read verses 22 through 25. And as we read that, um, let's, let's hear what God is revealing to us about his judgment and his grace. 
Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Now this, this little passage in Isaiah 45, this is one of Paul's favorite Old Testament texts about God's judgment. He quotes verse 23 in Romans 14, as we've seen. He also quotes it in Philippians 2 and applies it to Jesus, showing that Jesus is God. He is the one before whom we will stand on the last day. Now notice, though, in context, this passage in Isaiah, how Paul's verse, verse 23, it follows a call from God for repentance and salvation, verse 22, that is given to all the ends of the earth. God is saying to the nations, turn to me, repent, come to me, run to me. Why? And be saved. And be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. This is critical for us to see. In scripture, God links his judgment to a call to repent while the day of salvation in Christ is still here. In other words, until Jesus comes back, the call is always the call of the gospel. Run back to Jesus. No matter where you are, who you are, what you've done, turn to the Lord and be saved. He alone is God. He's the judge. He can set you free in Christ. Run to him. That's how this text starts. And so if God is God and there is no other, if we go around and what people hear from us is, you are judged because you are you're not a Christian, you've got this wrong, um, you know, I think you're, you're damaged goods because of this thing you've done, and people just assume that there's no place for them amongst us, then we have to own the fact that no matter what we say we believe, what it, we are communicating is not this, is not the gospel of repentance and faith in Christ Jesus and forgiveness and grace. And so we have to take stock. We are not God. He is God, and he extends a call to repentance. And so we don't get to call the shots now and take his place as judge. We are entrusted with this message. And so then in verse 23, God explains how by his own word, he has promised this will happen on the Lord's day when Jesus returns, every knee will bow before him. Now that doesn't mean that everybody will be saved. Every knee will bow in that we will all stand before our creator. And those who do not run to God to be saved, those who don't turn to Jesus in faith, they will bow before the Lord as their judge, and they will have to answer for their sin and their rebellion and their unbelief. But those who are, are in Christ, they will get to stand before the Lord and, or bow before the Lord as judge who has declared no condemnation over them in Christ and as their father because they've received God's grace as a gift that they didn't deserve. They received it in Christ, and he was condemned in their place. So the point is, Paul, and Paul's point in quoting verse 23, is that everybody... Everyone, no exceptions. There's no running from this judge. We will stand before the Lord's judgment seat on that day. And this is heavy to think about. Because often as Christians, we kind of like to think, well, I believe the gospel, I think about with it. And the most important thing to see, though, in the Isaiah text, in verse 24, is that on that day, when the Lord returns, it will be said this, only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. Only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. That is 
both bad news and good news. It's bad news because it means no matter what we think about ourselves, there's no righteousness and strength in us on our own effort. But that's not the only news. The good news is, is that the righteousness and strength of Jesus are given to God's people by his grace and we receive it by faith. What is being said here is nothing other than the the truths we said together in our congregational response. None of us can stand before God without Jesus. We are not righteous. We are not strong on our own. Our only hope for salvation is in Christ, who is our righteousness, who is our strength. As Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, we are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If only in God are righteousness and strength, then we all stand together. We stand in Jesus as God's people. And so that truth leads to Isaiah's conclusion in verse 25, that in the Lord all the offspring of Israel, that is all of God's people, will be justified and shall glory. Not in themselves, not in having the right views, not in correcting the most people. In the Lord we will be justified, declared right, declared forgiven, and we will glory. We will delight and we will celebrate what our God has done for us in Jesus on that day. And here's how this this clips back into Romans 14. We can turn back there together. But if a Christian's righteousness and strength are from God, if he alone is righteous and strong, then that means we have no standing, no basis for judging or despising one another. We all stand together in Christ. It would be like standing in line at an amusement park when it's really hot, and it's being like, only crazy people stand here in the heat. Like, why, why would anyone do this? It's like, well, you're standing there together. Like, you can't cast judgment when you're standing in the same spot. And so, in this case, you know, we stand together, not in the sweltering sun, but we stand together in Jesus, clothed with his righteousness, clothed with his strength. So what are we doing turning sideways glances at each other, judging one another? We're in the same spot. And if we do start judging each other, here's what's happening. You're not judging that person You're judging God's work in that person's life. You're trying to put God in the dock, essentially, for not parenting his kids better. Because you think, well, you know, this person, this Christian here, they say they're a Christian, but they're doing this, or they don't think this, or or their doctrine, you know, I don't know. Um, And so you start judging them. But what you're doing is you're really judging the Lord because he is their father. And the righteousness and the strength they have is from him. And so maybe you are pointing to something in somebody's life that does need to be addressed. But here's the thing. Do you think God's not aware of that? And if you do think the Lord would have you help your brother or sister with whatever it is you're focused on in their life, do you really think he would have you do it by casting judgment or derision? Do you think he'd have you try to help them in a way that puffs you up and makes you feel like you're better than them? There's no way he would have us do it that way. He has said no condemnation over us. So why would we interact with each other in any other way? There's the better way, there's the way of love, which when faced with error or wrongdoing seeks to build up, not judge and condemn. And when faced with disagreement and difference in opinion, love seeks to draw near and learn and understand, not look down in derision and scoff and pull away. And so we have, as Paul is helping us see, no standing to look down on one another because we stand in the same place together. We stand in Jesus, clothed in his righteousness and strength and redemption. And so, Paul wants us, rather than judging other Christians, or even just worrying about what God is going to say to someone else when they stand before him, Paul wants us to focus first 
on ourselves in verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul makes it very clear. We will each give an account of ourselves to God. Now that language of, of giving account to the Lord, that, that can sound very frightening and anxiety-inducing. You know, wait a minute, I thought if I believed in Jesus, there's no condemnation. What, what, is, what is Paul talking about here? Well, think about it like this. Paul's already said in Romans, in Romans 5.1, that we have peace with God because we've been justified in Jesus. In Romans 8.1, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation, none, for those who are in Christ. And in Romans 8.31, he asks the great question, if God is for us, who could be against us? Not even our own sin, then, can count against us in Christ. So having said all those things leading up to this point in Romans, Paul is not at all trying to shake our assurance of God's love for us. He is not saying that we are saved by our works. We are saved by Jesus alone. And so he's not trying to destroy our assurance of God's love for us. The only thing he's trying to shake our certainty and assurance of is our ability to judge each other. But when it comes to our standing before God at final judgment, Paul wants us to be 100% assured of the gospel. He wants us to look forward to that day because as the Westminster Standards, they put it really well. On that day when we stand before Jesus, if you have received him by faith, then what will happen is you will be openly acknowledged and acquitted, that is, declared righteous, pardoned, forgiven, because as God's redeemed and beloved children, Jesus has already been judged in your place. And so that's a day you can look forward to it. If you wrestle with assurance, you wrestle to believe God loves you, on that day, you won't be able to doubt your identity anymore as God's child, because to your own face, not fear, we can actually look forward to it, because it's a day where all shadow of doubt and uncertainty will melt away in the Lord's presence as he smiles upon us. Now at the same time, the Bible does, and in this passage is a key text in this way, it's very clear that our report before God will involve the actual things we've done as Christians in this life. It's not just a sort of general uh, report. We'll talk about our life as a Christian. Now again, we're not saved by our works, but the good works we do as Christians, they matter. They have eternal significance. They don't cause God's grace in our life, but they are evidence of his grace at work in our lives. And so this is why we have to remember the way we live matters. The Lord sees the way we live, and he, he delights in the things we get to do as Christians. And so the question for us is, you know, what, what are we doing as Christians? What are we doing with the gospel that has been entrusted to us? What are we doing in one another's lives? And this point is very important to think about, what you're aiming at in your life as a Christian, which ultimately should be all of your life. Now, an interesting thing to think about is when Jesus talks about judgment, and he talks about his people standing before him and the works he will look at, he doesn't talk about grand and glorious things that you would post about on Twitter and get a bunch of followers for. The works Jesus highlights in Matthew 25 are very ordinary, and they're always relational. For example, think about the things that Jesus highlights when he talks about the final judgment in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. It's the classic text about judgment where he's separating the sheep and the goats. And the things he mentions that the sheep have done are all relational. It's sharing food and drink, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked, and visiting the sick and imprisoned. Those are ordinary things you can do on an ordinary Wednesday afternoon. In fact, they're so ordinary that if you know that passage, you know that the people gathered before Jesus, they say, Lord, when, when did we see you to do any of these things? I have the verse for you in your bulletin. 
But they're, they're, they're shocked. They're thinking, you know, these, these just seemed like everyday things. Like, when did we see you for this to happen? And notice how Jesus responds. He says, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Did you catch how he talked about the people they did these things to? They did it to their brothers and their sisters in Christ. Jesus is talking about the things we do to build each other up in very simple, very ordinary ways. These things are so important to him that they're the things he's gonna wanna talk about most when we report to him on that last day. These everyday acts of hospitality and love that Jesus is talking about there in Matthew 25, that Paul is talking about here in Romans 14. This is the heartbeat of our life together as Christians. These are the most important opportunities that God entrusts to us that we get to grow in faithfulness with. Now sometimes though, as you're going through life, you just you get in your rhythm to think about this as the school year's coming up on an end, you know, your schedule's about to change. It's a good time for self-reflection. And one creative way you can see some opportunities that God has given you that you're just not noticing is work backwards. Work backwards from the places you find yourself judging other Christians. And then recognize your judgment and derision in that space, that's jamming up your ability to participate in a positive and a proactive way in the life you have in Jesus. So start there and ask yourself these questions. Where are you, mo- where are you critical of other Christians? You know, don't be general. Be very specific. You know, ask, ask yourself this question. Ask someone close to you this question. Where are you critical of other Christians? And then, and this is key, how might that become a space where you are devoted to building up your siblings in Christ. We have to have a redemptive, gospel-saturated imagination about these things. We can't assume that, well, I've always just been critical there, I'm just a curmudgeon, nothing can change. Well, yeah, you can't change yourself, but your strength is in Jesus. Pray and ask him, Lord, I am critical here, I despise my brother and sisters in these ways, but would you come in by your grace and change me? And use this as a place where I would instead over time, become more and more devoted to building people up. You want to see the gospel work in your life? That's where you start, where you are most confronted by your sin against your brothers and sisters in Christ. And ask Jesus to change you and to do good in your life and in our life as a church. And this is a question we've got to take seriously. I mean, it's, it's cliche to talk about at this point the increasing polarization in American life, but it's cliche because it's real and everybody feels it. And we all know, especially being in this building, There's another election year coming. And if you think about the past decade or so, about all the things that have just shell-shocked the unity and trust between everyday Christians, it's staggering and depressing. And so what we need to do is dig in and do the spade work of our own maturation in Christ now. Let's cultivate a holy imagination together. Think back to what bothered you most not just in general in society, but about the way other Christians acted that you disagree with in the last election cycle. And then pray over that specific thing. Lord, how could it be different this time? And then think about it together. What would it be like for us as a church to become one where, and I think we are uh, already striving in faithfulness in many ways here, so don't hear this as a smackdown. Hear this as, let's keep going. This is opportunity. What would it be like for us as a church to be the kind of church where political disagreements, cultural disagreements, all those kinds of things, they're not opportunities for smackdowns and you know, raging online, but those are opportunities for hospitality, for good discussion, for thinking together about, all right, how do we follow Jesus in these really complicated things? What would it look like for us to be the kind of church 
that's so focused on showing each other hospitality in ways that make no sense apart from Jesus so that we don't have time to get swept into the ruckus online. That's the kind of, of reality that Paul is pointing us towards when he's saying, don't gather to quarrel over opinions. You're not judge over each other. Build each other up as siblings. Do it in beautiful ways that make no sense apart from Jesus because that will grow you. That will grow and change our community. It will draw people to Jesus. Now, this is also, that's, you know, something that applies to all of us in some really big ways, I think. This, this question is also really important, I think, for you to think about uh, very personally and about yourself because you may be the Christian that you're most critical of in your life. You may be the Christian you're most critical of in your life. Depending on your personality, depending on your story and things that have happened to you, you might be frustrated by your station in life, your job's not what you want, and you, you just assume it's your fault. Your relationships aren't where you'd like them to be. You know, friendships, your marriage if you have one, not being married if you want one, uh, your friendships. Uh, maybe in your eyes, your faith is just weak, and you should be so much further along in your mind. Uh, maybe you feel completely unseen in a world filled with amplified and artificial awesomeness. Everybody's posting their best life online. You see that, but all you see is your, your life and you just, it, everything feels mediocre, feels exhausting, it feels monotonous. You see everyone's best and you're consumed by your worst and you're critical of yourself. You judge yourself. You actually despise yourself. You're the Christian you're most critical of in your life. And if you find yourself in a place like this, I think there's a very deep well of comfort for you to draw from a few verses earlier in Matthew 25. They're also in your bulletin for you. In Matthew 25, verses 21 and 23, this comes from Jesus' parable of the talents. And in that parable, if you recall, this is when Jesus talks about a master who entrusts three servants with different numbers of talents. By talent, it doesn't mean a talent show, you know, like tap dancing, which I will not do up here. Um, but talent was a very large unit of money. And he entrusts one servant, one talent, another two, and another five. And the only servant who does a bad job is the one who's given one. And it's because he doesn't know his master's heart and character, and he hides the talent, he buries it in the ground, and does nothing with it. He doesn't want anything to happen to it. But the other two servants, the one who had two, the one who had five, they go and they use it generously. And when their master returns, they've both doubled what they have. The one who had two made two more, the one who had five made five more. Now here's the key. Those two servants have very different amounts of money, and yet they hear the exact same words from the master. They hear the same words from Jesus, which are, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, do you see what this means? It means you don't have to worry about whether you're doing enough. Once you start asking that question, is this enough? You're gonna start comparing yourself to somebody else and you're gonna take your eyes off of Jesus. Even if that somebody else is just an imagined ideal version of yourself, you're gonna look at that, you're gonna compare yourself to that, you're gonna loathe where you really are and all the while you won't be looking at Jesus. And when we take our eyes off Jesus, we put ourselves in that spot where suddenly arrogance and envy, especially insecurity in our relationship with God, prime us to start judging each other because we're just comparing. Am I doing enough? We start nitpicking and tearing each other down. But when we focus on Jesus and remember that he alone is our judge, we can walk in the generous freedom we have in him. We can focus on his love and we can ask him to help us see the opportunities in our lives that we have. They don't have to be a lot because they're the ones he's given you. 
This is remarkably encouraging if you're in a season of life where you feel totally unseen by everybody around you. Um, you know, you think of some of the, the, the mundane things you do at your job. You think of uh, changing diapers and these everyday tasks, and you're like, no one's going to post that online and, you know, give me a smiley face, unless maybe in an ironic way. But you can know when you're doing these things, and you're doing them to build somebody up because they're an image bearer of God, and you're growing them in just little touches every day of being a presence of Christ's love in their life. Jesus sees that, and he cares about it, and he delights in it. And so you can be encouraged. Don't worry about how many talents you've been entrusted. Be faithful with, with what you have and know that there is coming a day where you'll stand before, not the court of public opinion, you'll stand before your father and you'll get to give that report to your father in heaven and your elder brother Jesus, the one whose brothers and sisters we all are in Christ and we get to serve, the one whose blood has washed away your sin and speaks a better word of no condemnation over you. You'll get to stand before the one who will one day say to you and to everyone who calls upon his name by faith, well done, enter my joy. Amen? Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, uh, that you are the judge. Uh, Lord, you are our judge of, of all that you have made because you can see it clearly. You are holy, Lord. You are perfect. You are righteous and you are also abounding in steadfast love and mercy and grace, forgiving our sin and iniquity and transgression in Christ. But we praise you that you have brought us out of our sin and into Christ. And Lord, I, I pray that you would grow our assurance of your love for us. Lord, help us to not get so caught up in the things going on in, uh, outside of ourselves that we, that we ignore, the places where, where we need to just sit and be still and really be assured that, yes, you love us personally. And we are indeed your sons and daughters in Christ. Lord, assure us of your love that we can then see clearly by the power of your spirit the opportunities you're giving us in the everyday to build each other up. Lord, you have not only made us your, fa uh, your children and you've made yourself our father, but you've made therefore us one another's siblings. Help us, Lord, to, to take that seriously in the best of ways, to, to, to delight in that fact and to uh, to lean into these opportunities. I pray, Lord, that you'd comfort us when we feel discouraged, when we feel like the things we, we are doing in life don't matter. Help us to remember that you see us and you delight in giving us these things to do for your glory. And Lord, would you draw many uh, to yourself who do not yet know you, that they'd know you, Lord, as the Father who sent his Son, that they might have life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.